Welcome to 100 Things I'll Miss When I'm Dead. I'm Michael Koval Anderson. Welcome to my happy place, my podcast where I self-medicate against my constant overthinking and anxiety about my own mortality with tiny happy pills of positivity and reflection. Well, uh, hello there. Here we are again. I am very aware that it's been a while since the last episode upload. Over a year and a half. This little pandemic project bolted out of the gates back in the day, and then I have soundly neglected it a couple of times. Back in spring 2022, life started to return to normal, and there was more work and projects, and fair enough that I needed to focus on all of that. Especially after the shit show that was the pandemic. Thanks to all the people who have let me know on various platforms that they hope I can continue the podcast. I have never not wanted to continue, but it's just proved difficult to squeeze it into my life over the past, yeah, long time. But here we are. One of the primary reasons I have not had time to record these episodes is... Number 64, Ukraine. Like the global majority, the full invasion of Ukraine by Russia back in February 2022 was a shock to me. Everything I was told to fear growing up during the Cold War was now happening. A country on our doorstep here in Western Europe was victim to a brutal invasion. I even had friends in the Baltic countries texting me back then, asking for a place to stay if Russia continued their rampage after Ukraine. It's still goes on as I record this episode. It's sad and horrific that we're seeing this happen in our part of the world. I didn't handle the invasion very well at all at the beginning. I was doom-scrolling the news and several channels on the Telegram messaging app 24 hours a day. It was obsessive, and my anxiety, man, it was completely off the charts. I can always sleep at night, but there was a week where it was horrible. I wasn't so much concerned about a Russian invasion of Denmark, but Russia is only 400 kilometers away from this country, the enclave of Kaliningrad. So, with these people, (laughs) you never know. It was the risk of a nuclear accident that featured prominently in my brain. Still does to this day. I remember in detail the fear in 1986 when the nuclear reactor at Chernobyl blew up and maps of where the radiation was spreading were on the news. We were completely scared and transfixed. I ended up with an odd solution to my anxiety. I packed two go bags, one for me and the kids if we needed to get to an airport, and one with all my camping gear if we needed to escape into the wild. As soon as I had packed them and they stood ready to go in my bedroom, a weight was lifted from my shoulders and my anxiety returned to normal levels. It was so therapeutic. And six months after that last year, I walked into my room and I said, you know what? I think it's time to unpack these bags. Another weight was lifted, another little therapeutic moment. In May 2022, I received an email from urban planning colleagues in Ukraine. I didn't know them, but they asked me, being who I am, if I could somehow get used bikes in Denmark and figure out how to transport them to Ukraine. Bikes were desperately needed. That's what they told me. I said yes Instantly, it was a personal appeal to help Ukraine from colleagues 
and it was something firmly in my wheelhouse as an urban designer. I went from feeling hopelessly powerless to feeling incredibly useful. I started to figure out how to get used bikes. Little did I know back then that it would end up taking over my entire life for the next year and a half, and probably a few years into the future. I started a nonprofit organization called BikesForUkraine.org, Bikes Number Four Ukraine.org, and with some volunteers here in Denmark, we developed crowdfunding, graphic design, social media, as well as figuring out how to get used bikes. In July last year, the first truck filled with good used bikes left Copenhagen for Lviv in western Ukraine. Ukraine featuring on this list of 100 things I'll miss when I'm dead would not have happened had I completed the podcast series as I planned back in 2021. But it is very much on the list now. Since last year, I have spent more than six months in total in Ukraine, in the safe cities in the west and the war-torn cities in the east and the south and everywhere in between. Despite the horrors of war that I have seen, I am happy that I continue to have Ukraine in my life. The initial switch from feeling helpless to feeling useful was a massive catalyst. It ignited a fire inside me. This is a major event in world history, and I am part of it, on the ground. I've done eight trips to the country so far. The next one is coming up soon. When I'm not in Ukraine, I'm thinking about getting back. All the time. There is a vibe in the country that is quite addictive. I need to be there with the Ukrainians, doing what I can to help. I can't get enough of it. Everyone I speak to there says the same thing. For the first three months of the invasion, with Russia pushing towards Kiev, they were scared. Simple as that. Complete fear. When the Russians pulled back after failing to take the capital, however, there was a collective sigh of relief, even though the war was still raging in other parts of the country. Then the fear was replaced with a deep desire to live life to the fullest. I describe it to people like this. You can sit in a wine bar in Kiev that looks and feels like a wine bar anywhere else in Europe, filled with people who look like anyone else in Europe. But everyone in that bar has an inherent sense of loss. Everyone. Either they've lost a friend or family member, a family home was destroyed, or they have friends on the front lines right now who risk dying at any moment. Add to that the constant threat of missiles making it through the air defenses and striking yet another residential area. Ukrainians don't take that sense of loss and withdraw. They transfer it into a strength and resilience like nothing I have ever experienced in my life. And I have been in war zones before. I chose Ukraine as the title of this segment, but really, it is the Ukrainians themselves. I am constantly amazed by the collective spirit of Ukrainians. Since day one, they are dedicated to helping each other. Everyone is crowdfunding or crowdsourcing something. Is your friend going off to war? Crowdfund a used car for him to take to the front. Get it retrofitted with military camouflage and night vision. Or crowdsource boots, sleeping bags, drones, you name it. It's astonishing, not least because it continues completely unabated after more than 500 days of fighting for their very existence. A friend of mine is a war photographer who is embedded with troops in the most intense areas of the front lines. He told me that we share the same affliction. His is worst, he told me. 
He thrives on the adrenaline kick of being in the trenches with bullets whizzing past and shells screaming overhead. But beneath that layer, we both experience a kind of rush, a kind of satisfaction of being in the country and spending time with the people who are victims of the war. That on its own might sound a little bit selfish, kind of like war tourism, but it's not. It is addictive to spend time with people who are fighting with passion for their nation, for their very survival. It's addictive to be with people who know more than I that life is worth living to the fullest because it can be taken away in an instant. It is hard to come home to Copenhagen or to travel to other places in Europe or North America because there is no tension, no fight for survival, no uncertainty about the future. The worst thing that can happen in Copenhagen is getting, I don't know, bad cafe latte art. I'm so sorry, excuse me. That does not look like a leaf. Can I talk to your manager, please? Really, there's a hashtag called Copenhagen Problems. Being in Ukraine and working with Ukrainians is a crash course in living life. In Western Europe, we have had no reason to fear for our very existence for many decades. Every waking moment in Ukraine is life-affirming. Every single person is inspiring. The bikes? At first, they went to internally displaced people, which is shortened to IDPs, in camps in Lviv in the West. The city received 200,000 IDPs last year, adding to their pre-war population of 700,000. A massive increase that paralyzed transport. So our bikes were used for mobility, for people who had left everything behind to escape the invasion. They still are today. The IDPs used the bikes to go to the supermarket, the doctor, job interviews, all the normal things that bikes are used for. And they also just go for bike rides. The adults were, and always are, so incredibly grateful when we deliver the bikes. But the kids, oh, the kids, man, they are electric. The simple joy when they see the kids' bikes and hop on them and disappear to go ride them somewhere chokes me up every single time. Then it started to snowball. We started to receive appeals for used bikes all over the country. Every single week to this day, more and more appeals appear in my inbox. Now, most of our bikes go to our network of NGOs, and volunteers and social workers use them to deliver food, water, humanitarian aid, medicine, even the post in some areas to the most vulnerable victims of the war in the most devastated areas. Lifelines in a war zone. So many roads are bombed or ruined by military vehicles. Public transport is unreliable or even non-existent in many areas. There's a shortage of cars and of gas. Bikes can navigate any landscape. They're reliable, resilient, easy to repair. We get sent photos from the people using the bikes. A 20-something woman with 30 kilograms of potatoes on the back rack Huge jugs of water hanging on the handlebars. A backpack filled with more stuff. Riding 5 to 10 kilometers out into the suburbs or rural areas to help the people there several times a day. I visit them too when I can. Last month, I was standing in a town that used to have 7,000 people, but now 80% of it is destroyed. Stari Saltov is the name of the town, east of Kharkiv, 30 kilometers from Russia. Massive battles in and around the town last year, man. 55 people were left there by September 2022. Mostly elderly people who simply refused to leave. We sent them seven bikes last year, and they are used every single day, delivering things to the elderly, but also now that people are returning, carrying construction materials needed to rebuild the homes. But yeah, 
standing in a town that was almost erased from the face of the earth, walking through destroyed homes and schools. <sighs> yeah, those images and emotions, man, they are permanent. It's solemn when I'm showed around places like that, speaking in low, serious tones. But then, the stories they tell us about how the bikes are being used, they start to get told. The whole vibe pivots. Faces light up. Dialogue is animated. And it's just bikes, man. That is what bikes can do. Since that first shipment, we have now delivered over 900 bikes to over 30 cities and towns in Ukraine. We have six soldiers on the front lines who have agreed to test the usefulness of bikes in a hot war zone. I am so looking forward to getting their feedback and writing about it. They're not used to attack or anything. They're used to speed silently through the woods and down the country roads to get supplies from farther back behind the front lines. Things like that. We rely on crowdfunding, which has faded now that the war is farther away from the public consciousness and people are experiencing war fatigue in the media. Not in Ukraine, but everywhere else. Nevertheless, we soldier on. And I feel the need to be there constantly and to continue trying to get more bikes to the country. I'm not exaggerating when I say that I could show up tomorrow with 50,000 good used bikes and they would be put into use in an instant. The need, man, it is real and it won't disappear for a very long time. But apart from the need to be there as much as possible, I have learned that there are opportunities to be had in a war zone. Certainly a war zone populated by these amazing Ukrainians. There is no wait and see. Many Ukrainian cities are carrying on, planting trees, rebuilding bridges, renovating sidewalks, making their cities normal again, even as air raid sirens sound off several times a day. I visited the city of Mykolaiv in the south last year, 10 kilometers from the front line and shelled daily back then. I met the mayor and interviewed him for my YouTube channel. But then he asked me, out of the blue, as an urban design expert, if I could help design the city for bikes. He said it himself, the war is an opportunity for positive urban change. I hear the same thing all over the country. But there, again, I said, yes, of course. And me and my team have been working on this for months. I'm planning urbanism workshops for kids in Kiev, getting them involved in planning their streets, neighborhoods, and cities. And I have a long list of projects that I need to find funding for. I am on other people's projects too including rebuilding entire villages. I'm also curating a book with articles by 35 colleagues from around the world with 45 urban ideas for Ukraine and every other city in the world. The first book about post-war reconstruction in Europe in the 21st century. And hopefully the last. It's important, this book. I fear that whatever Marshall Plan that is coming to rebuild the country will be dominated by big industry. So we need to get the word out about life-sized cities, human-scale development, sooner rather than later. The book's coming out in October. The can-do spirit in a war zone is inspiring. Being a part of the positive change is amazing. When I deliver bikes to people, they are so grateful. Grateful that you're there in the country, helping them, and grateful for the donation of bikes. All those heartfelt thank yous, they are golden. I often wonder what would happen if, for example, Denmark was invaded in the same way. I trust that the humans here, like anywhere, would band together and form a collective front to help each other in a time of crisis. That is certainly what happened during the pandemic in this country. Or maybe 
We've had too many decades of prosperity and complacency and peace. Ukraine, after all, was invaded in 2014, so they have had this reality for a long time, and a full invasion has always been a possibility. But yeah, I am going to miss Ukraine, and of course, Ukrainians, when I'm dead. But until that happens, they have injected passion, love, and resilience straight into my veins. And my work and experience in the country has already left its indelible mark on me as a person. And I am still crowdfunding. There's a link in the description. If you have some cash to spare, I will put it to good use in Ukraine. On the website, you can get involved by organizing a bike collection in European cities. We've done it in Berlin, Ghent, and Budapest. More cities are now getting involved. Or you can organize a local fundraiser wherever you are in the world. And if you raise enough money for a shipment, it's mostly the trucks that we use to ship the bikes to Ukraine that eat into our budget, you can sponsor that shipment of bikes. We'll put stickers on them saying, a gift from the people of whatever, wherever, whoever you are. All the bikes we deliver that have a sticker on them with a personal name or, or a place that has donated them, man, the Ukrainians absolutely love it. It really feels much more personal. We've received fundraised money from a mobility organization in British Columbia, a cycling club in the States, a church congregation in New York State. A guy in the UK auctioned off cool vintage BMX bikes and gave us the proceeds. I wrote an article a few years ago about how bicycles are powerful tools and symbols during war or after disaster, with examples from the past 130 years. Now I get to see the proof of concept every single day when I'm in the country. It really is so poetic and beautiful how something as simple as a humble, used bicycle, something that was used by someone in Europe, can have a massive transformational effect on the lives of people in Ukraine. Sending clothes, sleeping bags, boots, they are so important, and they are also personal effects. They really help people. But there is just something completely different about a bicycle. Link in the description to the website, Instagram, Facebook, and the crowdfunding. Thank you. Number 65, trying new things. This one started with a bit of scientific research I read many years ago that confirmed a loose life philosophy of mine. We've all heard it before. Come on, try new things. We can understand the basic idea that this is probably a good thing. Trying, exploring, experiencing. But then I read this research about how there seems to be a cutoff date for humans wanting to try new things. It was a study with various research angles, but the one I remember is how they analyzed the first sushi restaurants that opened up in the Midwest in the States. Sushi was, for many years, a big city on the coast phenomenon, but it gradually spread to the rest of the country, much the same all over the world. The researchers discovered that the people who were trying sushi in the new restaurants were mostly under 30 years old. Very few people older than that. Combined with other research they did, they concluded that humans older than 30 are highly unlikely to try new things. We essentially get stuck in our ways and are loath to experiment after that point. We'll buy the same brand of car, vote for the same party, eat the same foods, and so on. I recall that the percentage was incredibly high. Something like 95% of people won't try new things after the age of 30. That's wild. I read about this and I told my wife at the time all about it. We both agreed in an instant that we would prefer to be in that 5% and not get stuck in familiar, comfortable patterns. 
It was a good, healthy decision that became a solid life philosophy. I stick to it as much as I can. One example. I travel a lot for work and I often am a guest at a conference or event. If we go out for dinner, I insist that my hosts choose something for me to eat from their local cuisine. I end up eating things that I would never normally choose for myself. I am not a big adventurer in the food world, but it is so interesting and exciting. I'm older now and I look at people around me who are my own age and while I don't really have the data, it feels like they have developed patterns that they stick to. Same holiday destinations, same clothing style, same haircut forever, same circle of friends. I like that I'm outside those patterns. But as I said at the beginning, reading about this study was more of a confirmation of a pre-existing, albeit undefined, life philosophy of mine. I've always made a point of trying new stuff for the experience, but also because I have a tendency to always want to do what other people wouldn't dare or bother to do. I've always had a burning desire to do things outside these norms. Dare to do these things, daring myself to do them, but also to demonstrate that I refuse to be just one in a crowd. All of this ever since I was young. So reading about the study helped me define this part of myself and gave me a reason ever since to continue to challenge myself by trying new things. But it has also become a stubborn part of my personality. I can sometimes be incredibly demonstrative about it, more now that I'm older than when I was under 30 as a counterweight to others in my generation for whom experimentation has faded away. Even though it's a part of my life, there are many times where I still have to force myself to do it, to stay true to the philosophy. But hey, at the core, I like it. It never gets old. It's always interesting. I highly recommend it. Number 66. That first glass of wine at 5 o'clock. Some ancient ancestor of mine, after a good day of hunting or gathering, looked at the sundial and said, well, you know what? I think I'll have a drink. I suck at drinking during the day, which, of course, was a black mark on my CV when living in France. I'll only have a glass of wine or beer at lunch if I'm on a beach holiday and there's a lounger for me to nap on in the afternoon. For many years, I've had the personal rule that I won't have a drink until at least 5 o'clock in the afternoon. I'm generally good at sticking to it. It feels incredibly grown up, still to this day, like I have control over it. It's apparently a thing, right? There's that old expression when somebody says early in the day, oh, let's have a drink. And then you say, oh, it's too early. And then they say, it's five o'clock in Singapore, or it's five o'clock somewhere. Maybe that's why I ended up with a five o'clock game start. At one point during the pandemic, bars and cafes had to start closing at 11 p.m. It was fascinating to see how the pragmatic Danes, in a flash of collective subconscious planning, simply started meeting an hour or two earlier than normal in order to continue getting maximum drinking and social time together. During that period, I shifted it to four in the afternoon. It is of utmost importance to me to underline the very serious fact that all of this does not apply to day drinking. Okay? Let me just hammer out the important understanding of that word in my life. You cannot plan day drinking. Don't even try. You cannot ever say, hey, you know what? Let's meet up tomorrow and go day drinking. No, it doesn't work that way. It has to sneak up on you. Let's have one glass of wine with lunch. Oh yeah, that's a bit crazy, but okay, just one. And then because of good conversation and atmosphere, should we have one more? Oh, are you crazy? Okay, one more. That's it, right? 
and so on, until you suddenly find yourself leaving a bar at 5 o'clock the next morning, wearing a clown costume, having embarked on the spontaneity of day drinking. It has to be unplanned, and it has to feel a little bit naughty. But right now, it's just past 5 here in Copenhagen. It is time. It's going to be good. You've been listening to 100 Things I'll Miss When I'm Dead. I'm Michael Kobel-Anderson. Thanks for being out there.